Hey everyone, I want to welcome you. And before we get started, I want to say this, no matter where you are watching throughout the entire world, Happy Father's Day. We are celebrating it here in America. So uh, listen, I've got to get home and be with my family so I have a real treat for you. Uh, but listen, ultimately, we have our great Father in Heaven. Uh, here's the thing. I recorded an interview just recently, just before all of the protests and riots started, with our friend Bill Salas. And, uh, and you're going to be blessed. You have not seen this one anywhere yet. In fact, this is the first time this interview is ever going to be seen anywhere. And I wanted to ask him some questions about some of the ideas that he has about Bible prophecy, the direction that things are going. And when I interviewed this, it looked like it was going to be on the tail end of coronavirus, uh, not knowing about the riots and all that. But listen, I know you're going to be blessed. So please sit back and enjoy this time in my interview with Bill Salas. God bless. All right, so let's just start right out of the gate. Uh, there's a war of Ezekiel chapter 38. We have uh, Psalm 83, which you've written a book on, a couple of different books. We have Isaiah chapter 17. There's a lot of different things going on in the Middle East. There's things going on and not going on in America when it comes to Bible prophecy. There's things going on in the globe. I want to get right to the first question. Ezekiel chapter 38, I get this question all the time. There's a war there. A battle that takes place. Uh, when does the battle take place? Before the rapture? After the rapture? Right. Uh, in my estimation, I believe the battle takes place and concludes before the tribulation period. But it's hard to say if it happens before the rapture or afterwards. We don't know the timing of the rapture. Mm -hmm. But I believe both events are pre-tribulation. The rapture and the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38. So we could be here as a church for the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 but there's a chance we won't be. Okay. So with that, let me ask you this, because the Bible also talks about the burning of weapons for seven years. So um, in my mind, as I've taught this passage, these two passages, 38 and 39 before, to burn the weapons for seven years into the millennial kingdom doesn't make, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with how I would place that battle. So I've always placed the battle in the either just before the tribulation begins or right about at the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, so you put it about in the same spot. Right. The, the theory that I subscribe to, I uh, got it from Dr. Ron Rhodes and Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. This is not my theory, but it makes a lot of sense. And that is, they will be burning weapons, converting them to fuel, it appears to be in the translation, as a nation, and they'll do that for seven years. Now, when we understand the seven-year tribulation period, it splits into two compartments. You've got the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years, also sometimes called the Great Tribulation, the worst part, because it's worse than the first three and a half years. Israel confirms a covenant that starts the seven-year tribulation. They're party to it, and they experience what's a pseudo-peace. It's pseudo because it doesn't last very long. It's sort of a false peace for the first three and a half years. So let's backtrack in time. They could be burning weapons for three and a half years in the first half during that pseudo-peace, and they probably will be. They could also be burning weapons for three and a half years prior to that period of time. So that would make your seven-year math. Are they going to be burning weapons in the second half of the tribulation? I say not likely, because that's a time of great travail for them. Jesus even tells us in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, etc., that when you see the abomination and desolation, which is the pivotal thing in the midpoint of the tribulation, one of the, one of the events that separates the first half from the second half, he tells, speaking of the Jews, especially in Judea and the locale of the temple, as the abomination takes, desolation takes place in the temple, he tells them, when you see that event, flee to the mountains. Uh, 
And he's talking, we commonly say he's referring to the mountains in southern Jordan of Petra. He's not saying, when you see that event happens, start burning more weapons. He's saying you flee immediately because he's, he's telling them that there's going to be a genocidal attempt by the Antichrist on the Jewish people. And we find out in Zechariah 13.8 that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be cut off in the land. It'll be worse than the Holocaust with Hitler is, is what it looks like. So he's telling them to flee, not burn weapons. So if anyone's fleeing in the second half and adhering to his instructions, they're liable to grab a weapon and use it on their way out instead of burn it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, logically speaking, they could have eight, nine, ten years worth of weapons. We don't know. But at the midpoint, whatever they got left, they stopped burning them. So it would probably be three and a half years in the first half and three and a half years prior to that. I think it's a clue as to the timing being a pre-tribulation event. Yeah. Very, it, that's really interesting. Um, so with that also, uh, two other questions come to mind. What kind of weapons are these, what is it that would actually be burning? Do you have any idea or any theories on that? Well, I would, say, I would suggest that whatever weapons Russia and its coalition has, they're not going to keep their best weapons on the shelf. So I've thought about it. It's probably the ABCs, atomic, biological, and chemical weapons okay. of some sort. Um, it's difficult to, to use a nuclear weapon. You've got to denuclearize it and then mo- move it into something. Israel's working on technologies. So I think the amazing thing is they're going to have the technologies that can turn weapons into fuel, per se. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people try to say, well, by that time, these weapons will be uh, arms control and There'll be no more nuclear weapons and, you know, weapons of mass destruction. It'll be back to the days of bows and arrows. And I say to them, I say, well, I don't, I don't really follow that line of thinking because, first of all, it wouldn't take long to burn up all the bows and arrows. It would, you wouldn't be burning those for seven years, right? Now, we're talking about whatever weapons they got are the weapons they're going to be coming with. Okay. Yeah, so you have uh, the, the war with shields and bucklers then. It can't be actual uh, shields and bucklers of horses that they're fighting with. If they're burning these weapons for seven years, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, that's my thing. Remember, uh, we've talked about this time before, is that when these prophets wrote in Ezekiel about 2,600 years ago, uh, he did not have the type of technologies and weapons that we have right now. You know, so he had to speak in the vocabulary of his time to try to tell us what mm-hmm. he is going to happen with what, what's going on in his vernacular. Okay, so with this also, uh, he's also talking about uh, Israel having uh, not having walls. So Ezekiel chapter 38 says, um, when this battle takes place with Russia and, uh, and Iran coming against Israel, they'll come against the land of unwalled villages, and also at a time when Israel's dwelling in peace and safety. So there's two different questions there. The first one is unwalled villages. Does that apply to the walls, that, the, the, the massive wall around Israel right now, or not around all of Israel, but much of it supporting, like Bethlehem, for example, to keep terrorists out. You've seen the border wall. I've, I've been there. Uh, take pictures next to it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are two different things you're talking about right there. I First of all, let me preface this. I take all of Ezekiel 38 and 39 literally. Except the horses, uh, the, the battle weapons. Well, correct. Up, I mean, yeah. I, I, but I take the, you, you, well, I guess you okay. got me on that, but I don't, I don't allegorize it. Right. what I'm trying to say. So basically what I'm looking at there is it says unwalled villages, furthermore dwelling without walls. Not just unwalled villages, dwelling without walls, bars, nor gates. Okay. So there's a little more details added to that. And so I would say that Israel is not dwelling in that condition right now. And ultimately, those, are, those walls exist today, and they exist on the northern border with Lebanon. They exist the partition wall that's about 400 miles inside of Israel proper, okay. separates out Palestinian terrorism. They've got Palestinian fences by the Gaza, walls around the fences around the Gaza. They've got walls even being built around between Jordan and there. Well, to surround, they're probably the most fenced and fortified country in the world, 
quite mm -hmm. frankly. The reason they have those walls there is so they can dwell securely amidst the enemies around them. And so ultimately that takes us to the next thing. Do they dwell securely? He's, Ezekiel mentions two times the Hebrew word Yeshav Vatak. They'll dwell safely. They'll dwell securely. Okay. So they'll be dwelling without walls, bars, and gates, meaning they do dwell securely and safely at some point in time. Is that point in time right now? And I say, I don't think so, because they're surrounded by these enemies. Now, then the question comes up, well, when will they dwell securely and safely? And and by the way, the Hebrew words Yeshav Vatak are not peaceful by some biblical precedent and not because of some diplomatically produced peace plan. It's, their military is defeated. It's a military confrontation of victory that now enables them to tear down walls and dwell securely. And so we say, well, when will they dwell securely? Well, actually, Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 28, verses 24 through 26, he says that he's, God's going to bring back the Jews into their land, out from the peoples. They'll, they'll dwell safely. The same words Yeshua talked, they'll plant vineyards, they'll build houses, they'll dwell securely. He mentions it two times. Then he goes, but when I execute judgments on those around them who despise them. So that's the condition of them dwelling mm -hmm. securely. There are people around Israel who despise them. They've come to wars against them. In 48, 67, 73, they have some fragile peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, but Syria is still at war with them, etc. And so when those judgments are ex executed upon those around them that despise them, they will dwell securely and they'll tear down the walls. So in my estimation, Ezekiel 38 is coming rapidly before us. It's a major marquee event. God's going to use that event to make his holy name known in the midst of his people of Israel, put the world on official notice. Ezekiel 39.7, that he's the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I don't believe that war is going to happen just yet because there's some preconditions. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are other prophecies that really have no more preconditions mm -hmm. that I'm looking at on my radar, more, more that could happen at the present time could happen now. Yeah, I want to get to some of those in just a second. But I want to ask you another question here from Ezekiel. Uh, the peace and safety, I had this question come into me just the other day. I, I know how I answered it. Uh, I want to hear how you answer it. The individual said that uh, he he seemed to think that the Antichrist, the peace and safety, uh, is the the peace that the peace agreement of Daniel chapter nine that um, that the Antichrist confirms with Israel, and therefore they're going to have this a peace agreement. And that's what Ezekiel chapter 38 is talking about. No, I know how I answered him on that. Uh, I'll tell you, I disagreed with him and I told him why. But I'm curious as to what you have to say. Does, is there any connection at all that you see with the agreement? Which we're going to get into the contents of the agreement of Daniel chapter 9 also. And it's going to be a surprise to what some people are thinking out there and what has been taught by many people over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be there in just a few more minutes. But is there any connection? Do you see a connection? with the covenant that is confirmed, Daniel chapter 9, with Ezekiel chapter 38, in the time of Israel living in peace when the war happens? Well, first of all, that's a really good question. And if there weren't other mitigating details and other prophecies, I would say that's a pretty sound mm -hmm. thinking, right? Because the Israel does, once this covenant is confirmed, they do live in this pseudo-peace for a period of time. They have some peace and safety as far as Israel does. I think the peace and safety being spoken of may be more international, but we'll just say that's confined it to Israel. So unless there were other reasons, like the burning of weapons for seven years, and other means for Israel to dwell peacefully without walls, bars, or gates, which I believe there are in advance mm -hmm. of this, that would be the logical conclusion. That peace and safety comes with the confirmation of the false covenant. But we'll talk about the false covenant, and that, that really has nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict or the enemies around them that despise them. 
But I also look at the, the pre-prophecies, like Psalm 83, the destruction mm -hmm. of Damascus, the toppling of Jordan, the Elam prophecy with Iran. These things could actually happen at the present time. And as a result, Israel becomes victorious and they can dwell securely. So I think the peace that's spoken of in Ezekiel 38 is accomplished militarily, not okay. politically brokered. Okay. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that too. Um, I, want to get, I want to come back to the contents of the covenant from Daniel chapter 9. A look at uh, why Israel enters into a covenant. Uh, what you have to say, there will be a surprise to some people. And it's uh, rather intriguing to say the least. But let's go over here. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the technology that is here. Mm -hmm. ID 2020, the mark of the beast. I want to get to these things before we conclude our time also. But right now, let's go over to Psalm 83. I want to talk about Isaiah chapter 17, Jeremiah chapter 49, I believe it is also. So mm -hmm. let's, let, let's, let's, uh, let's move over here a little bit. Uh, we see Russia, Iran, they're at the north, they're in Syria. Ezekiel chapter 38 uh, speaks specifically about Russia being a guard for the troops that are going to come against Israel. Russia's a guard. There's no doubt about that for the troops that are in, in, in Syria right now. They're overlooking Israel from Syria. They're at the north, no doubt. However, there are some, uh, there's some relationships there that aren't quite in line with the Bible yet. In order for me, when I look at Ezekiel 38 being fulfilled, they're not quite there yet. Turkey is not getting, doesn't, still doesn't get along great with Russia or Iran. There's that dynamic that needs to be worked through. However, you see something else also. Um, not everybody would agree with you. You see a Psalm 83 war, mm -hmm. and then also um, uh, Isaiah chapter 17. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, let's talk a little bit in Isaiah, uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 49. Mm -hmm. So let's go there, because you say that this needs to happen before Ezekiel chapter 38. Is that correct? Right. I believe that the conditions that make Israel living securely without walls, bars, and gates are facilitated by the, the prophecies that precede it that you just mentioned. And there's quite a few of them, actually. So what I will do, Tom, is I'll lay out how I think things are going to happen between now and the coming of Ezekiel 38. We'll start with Iran. Iran is definitely Ezekiel 38. When Ezekiel wrote, that was about Persia. But his contemporary, Jeremiah, wrote around 15 years before Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel 38. Jeremiah wrote around 596 B.C. He wrote about Elam. And when you look at a modern-day map of Iran, about two-thirds or three-fourths of it is Persia. But on the west side that hugs the Persian Gulf is Elam. They've always been geographically isolated from each other through these Zagros Mountains that stem through between the two locations. So Jeremiah is talking about Elam, but Ezekiel is talking about Persia. Well, Elam's not mentioned in Ezekiel 38, but Elam is mentioned in Jeremiah 49, verses 34 through 39 has its own independent prophecy. And I believe it's dealing with a nuclear Iran. I believe it's dealing with the prophecy we should be watching for right now, dealing with, and that's where Iran's uh, uh, first nuclear reactor was built, the Bashar nuclear reactor, its crown jewel of its nuclear program. Russia's building two more right there, right by the Persian Gulf there in Bashar, Bashar, Bashar two and Bashar three, and those will be finished by 2024 and 2026 respectively. And I'm watching that area right there as it's only six verses. I can lay them out real quick. It talks about the Lord being fiercely angry at some point in time with the leadership of Iran. Mm -hmm. We know he's fiercely angry because we're told he's going to destroy from the other leadership, the kings and the officials. And then it goes on to say, well, why, why is he angry with them? They want to launch something lethal somewhere. 
because it says he's going to break their bow at the foremost mm-hmm. of their might. He's going to prevent them from launching whatever they're going to launch lethally to wherever they're going to launch it. Obviously, he's not dealing with that Iraq-Iran war because he didn't stop the bow from launching eight years of missiles into Iraq. But they want to take out Israel, and the Lord's going to stop that. So I think it's got something to do with the leadership today. They fiercely anger the Lord. He brings about a disaster, it says, because of his fierce anger. And then after this happens, whatever this disaster is, it says he brings the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatters the indigenous population, the Elamites and Iran there, into the world. It says there's no nation where the outcasts won't go. Nations, plural. Worldwide dispersion. Sounds nuclear, sounds humanitarian crisis. And then he goes on to say some good news that many Iranian Christians now are latching to. It says, I will set my throne up in Elam. Before I say that, he says, I will pursue them with the sword until I've consumed them. So before we get into the good news for the Iranians, that tends to be a military confrontation. It says that their enemies will be dismayed when this happens. Iran will be dismayed before their enemies, plural, when this happens, meaning when it happens, Iran will have a menu of enemies, plural, which they have today. The Gulf Cooperative Council states of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Barak, I mean, Bahrain. Yeah. They're there. And then on the other side of the Gulf, and then you've got Israel, you've got the America, etc. So with that said, now the good news is, it says, I will set my throne up in Elam. That's very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says, and I will bring back the captives of Elam, those ones that were dispersed, and I'll restore their fortune. So there's good news at the end of that for the Iranians. But the bad news is there's a disaster coming. Now, this is not part of Ezekiel 38. So now here's the issue. When you start talking about Iran going through that, if that's modern-day Iran, modern-day Iran is not confined to modern-day Iran. They have their tentacles mm-hmm. spread out throughout the Middle East. you got Lebanon is controlled through Beirut with Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. With like 150,000 missiles pointed at Israel, yeah. you got Bashar al-Assad who's got chemical weapons in Syria, and you got uh, Hamas in the Gaza. You got Shiite militias mm-hmm. from Iraq and, and from Iran and Iraq now. You got the Houthis down in Yemen. Yeah. They got Israel surrounded. So and it turns out some of those countries are involved in other prophecies, and they're not involved in Ezekiel 38. Mm-hmm. Not not Syria, even though Russia's down in Syria. Russia's not listed in Isaiah 17 or Psalm 83, whereas Syria is not listed in Ezekiel 38 either, nor is Hezbollah. And mm-hmm. Lebanon's not listed in Ezekiel 38. They are listed in Psalm 83. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got to sort of really be careful as we go through these details and see how will these things parse yeah. themselves out. Yeah, one of the other challenges there is if uh, Iran is eliminated to such an extent beforehand, but yet they're, they're, they march in step with Russia when, when Russia comes down uh, against Israel, so you look at that and it appears that Iran's capacities would be quite limited at that time also. They'd be compromised. But remember, uh, some studies were done when there was an earthquake around the Bashar nuclear reactor a few years back. Studies done across the Gulf by the Arab Gulf Cooperative Council because there's two-thirds of the world's salinization, desalinization plants are in those Arab states. They're rich in oil, but they're poor in drinking and potable mm-hmm. water. And what their studies concluded is that if they had an earthquake or an attack on that nuclear reactor, within about 15 hours, the, the winds would sweep all this contamination over to them, and 40% or more of their populations could be destroyed like in 24 hours. But they did not say the same for Tehran. They studied that because you've got this Zagros mountain barrier there where the contamination would likely hit there and not necessarily go over. So I would say that Iran there's definitely going to come back in uh, mm-hmm. Persia. You know, but will they be the same Iran military that we have right now? And I make a point, I don't make a big point out of it, but when you look at the belligerence in Ezekiel 38, 1 through 5, 
Clearly, the top guys are Turkey and, and Russia. Iran gets an honorable mention. It's Persia down by Ethiopia, you know, Kush and Putin. So why are they not listed more up in the top? Maybe no big deal. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying they seem to get an honorable mention down lower down in verse 5, whereas sure. Russia and Turkey are the dominant factors. You bet. Okay, so let's uh, uh, move over to Isaiah 17 and also Jeremiah. So Isaiah 17 is very clear um, that Damascus, to me it is, anyways, not everybody would agree with me, um, that Damascus is going to get destroyed in one night. It's going to happen. Um, can you, let's get your perspective on that prophecy. I don't believe it's happened yet. I believe it's still coming in the future. I believe it's all tied into these events that we're talking about. And I do believe it's probably coming sometime soon. Mm-hmm. I concur with all that. Yeah. You know, so Iran gets hit, right? Mm-hmm. On whatever level, and the Elam prophecy. They're not going to go down by themselves. If this were to happen in modern times real soon, they're going to act out. They're going to act out with their proxies. And Syria is right at the top of the list with that, right? So I could see them coming against Israel with Hezbollah, lobbing the estimates they could lob a thousand missiles a day. Hamas mm-hmm. actually says they can lob a thousand missiles mm-hmm. a day down from the Gaza. Syria's got chemical weapons. At some point in time, Israel won't be able to withstand that kind of barrage of weaponry coming at them. And, and I believe Isaiah 17 actually talks about Israel taking a hit, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So Syria gets involved. And Damascus gets destroyed. It says in Isaiah 17:1, uh, Damascus will cease from being a city. It will be a ruinous heap. It literally gets reduced to rubble. That's the Hebrew definition of what's mm-hmm. being said there. It won't exist anymore. Now, some people would say, well, this already happened uh, with the Assyrian Empire in 732 B.C. But I, I would say, quite simply, Isaiah 66 chapters, he mentions Assyria 37 times. doesn't mention it once in Isaiah 17. But the kicker is in Isaiah 17, verse 9, he actually tells us, who causes the desolation. It says there will be desolation, not only in Damascus, but in other strong cities inside of Syria, caused by the children of Israel, mm-hmm. the Israeli Defense Forces. Yeah. So I, I see that. And then it says, like you said, the proof text and the real application is Isaiah 17:14, which says, one morning you see him, speaking of Damascus mm-hmm. and the Damascus pronoun, and the morning he is no more. Yeah. So you see, you know, we see Damascus one night, wake up in the morning, we read on the news, wow, it's, yeah. it's reduced to rubble now. But it does say this, though, to conclude the very last uh, verse of the of Isaiah 17. This is the portion of those who rob us and those who plunder us. Mm-hmm. So let's give Israel understanding this is self-defense. Mm-hmm. They're coming against Israel. Israel's defending mm-hmm. itself. So that's why they yeah. take out the city. Yeah. Now, as I read Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah uh, 49, I come to a conclusion that Israel takes a pretty severe blow. Um, is that correct? In, in this battle, in the one, in this battle of the destruction of Damascus. Right. Okay. So let me qualify that because I agree with you. When you say Jeremiah 49 in correlation with Isaiah 17, you're talking about the different camera angle of details. Yes. Jeremiah 49 verses 23 through 27 is dealing with Damascus. Damascus. We talked about Jeremiah 49 34 through 39 dealing with Iran, Elam. We're going to move a few verses earlier and talk about the camera angle of Damascus. It says there's trouble on the sea, probably talking about the Mediterranean Sea, where the nuclear subs, they've got five dolphin-class nuclear subs in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. There's trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Um, Syria gets concerned like a woman in fear, becomes feeble, right? Oh, yeah, if a nuclear weapon's maybe headed your way, you'd do that. And it says, 
that uh, the young men will fall in the streets, civilian casualty, and the men of war will fall, military casualties, and it takes takes out Damascus. So that's a, a lot of important other details as to how that might happen. But the thing is, you're talking about in Isaiah 17, verses 4 through 6, mm-hmm. we don't want to glance over that. How can Israel withstand chemical weapons, maybe, from Syria, mm-hmm. a thousand missiles a day from Hezbollah, a thousand missiles from Hamas, who knows if the Houthis get involved, or the Iraq Shiites, or Iran themselves, mm-hmm. lobbing stuff over how does Israel just walk away scot-free from that? Right? They, it doesn't appear that they do. It, it talks about in Isaiah 17, verses 4 through 6, that the glory of Jacob waxes lean, his flesh grows lean, his glory fades, rather, his flesh waxes lean. There'll be a shaking, like an olive tree, and the uppermost branch, meaning mm-hmm. probably northern Israel in the imagery here. You know, an olive tree can have about a half a million olives on it. They're very common in Israel. They can grow like 50 feet tall. There's a shaking and only two or three olives left in the uppermost branch three or four in the fruitful bowels it talks about. That doesn't sound good for Israel, you know, especially if they got chemical weapons coming and they're living in bomb shelters and mm-hmm. casualties are abounding. That's what I think could happen. Yeah, and Israel's threatened with chemical weapons all the time, especially coming from the north, they're threatened with that. Um, and, and so I look at this, and uh, I, I, as I look at the, the whole prophecy of Damascus, the, when you compare it with Ezekiel, Ezekiel is very clear. In that separate battle, God defends Israel. The battle of Damascus, you don't see that defense right. with with Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, or wherever the weapons are coming from. Excuse me, um, wherever they're coming from, you just don't see God defending them at that point. But you do see Israel defending itself. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you, now, before we move on to the next subject, you have a few books also along these subjects. What are they? Well, uh, I've got a whole bunch of books, but the, I'm writing an end-time series of the unfulfilled prophecies between now and the second coming of Christ. The first one is the now prophecies. The prophecies could happen at the present time. They lack preconditions. The sequel to that is the next prophecies, like Ezekiel 38. It's coming, but it's got a few preconditions. It's not quite ready for fulfillment. The last prophecies are starting to take us into the tribulation. Mm-hmm. The, that was the first half of the tribulation. I'm doing a fourth book, which will take us from the midpoint in the second half of the tribulation. Yeah. I'm so, that now. And I want to get into some of those things in just a minute because they're rather intriguing. Um, and, and so let's get into this, though. I, I, I told everybody we're going to look at the covenant. Daniel chapter 9. Very clear. Uh, God tells Daniel through. Uh, Daniel has the vision. He's been praying. And God lets him know through the angel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. We know that's a period of 77s or 490 years. We still know there's the 70th week of Daniel hasn't been completed yet, but God's clear. There's one more week, one more seven-year period where God is going to be dealing specifically with the nation of Israel. And then in Daniel chapter 9, we read verses 25 through 27, and we start to learn of when this is going to take place. It's going to take place in the last days. It is the last days, the 70th week of Daniel. But there's a covenant that is confirmed by one that we would call commonly Antichrist. Uh, Daniel says he confirms a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he breaks that covenant. Okay, so there's a lot there, but there's other passages to connect. So I've heard for years, decades, I've even taught this before, that the covenant uh, is part of a peace negotiation that takes place. Um, And also, there's a covenant that's already in place that's going to be confirmed by the Antichrist. 
It, but what do you what do you say? You have a different take on this, and I think it's very intriguing, and that's why I want to ask you this question. I think you've thought it through well. Um, it's not necessarily a peace covenant, is that right, or a peace treaty? Not necessarily a peace treaty between who the usual suspects are, okay. the Arabs and the Jews. Yeah, let's say yeah. Okay, let, let me state this too. So the covenant in there is the covenant with many. So we know the Jews are are among them. They're they're the center of this is the way is the way I read that. And then the many to me would be it could imply uh, the Arab nations around them. It could also imply perhaps the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, would that be possible with the many? Yeah, and that's the problem with okay. with only connecting this to Daniel nine. Fortunately, we don't have to just restrict ourselves to details of this covenant to Daniel nine. We can also go to Isaiah twenty eight verses. 15 and 18, who actually tells us who the many are. So Daniel 9:27, I concur with you. It, it starts the 70th week. We also would call that the tribulation with the confirmation of the false covenant. And we're told the Antichrist is the confirmer of the false covenant. He's not necessarily a party of it. He could be the drafter of it, but he's. we just know he's the confirmer. That's all the details we have. We know it's a seven year, it's related to seven years. In the middle of it, it gets broken at the midpoint seems to enable temple offerings and sacrifices. And it's a big deal because it's with Israel and many. That's all we get from Daniel for the most part. Yeah, it is confirmed. So just maybe you can explain this or illustrate this for everybody who's watching. To confirm something means what? Something already has to be in place, correct? Right. I got a, Jack Kinsella was a great Bible prophecy teacher who passed away. He brought that point up to me one time. We were on Jewish Voice TV together and we were in our hotel room afterwards. He said, Bill, you know, you can't confirm a dentist appointment unless you have one. I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, the Antichrist can't confirm a covenant unless one exists. I said, well, you're absolutely right. So there will be one in existence. Maybe he drafts it, maybe he doesn't. But he he becomes the political figure that Israel and the other party accept to broker something between them. And the examples we have that in modern time is uh, Jimmy Carter brokered a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. They trust both parties trusted him. Uh, Bill Carter, 1994, between Jordan Bill Clinton. and Bill Clinton. I, I do Is there a difference? Bill Carter. <laughs> Bill, Carter. Bill Carter. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to get political. Bill Clinton. Thanks for correcting yeah. me. So this guy will be respected by who the parties are. One, of course, will be Israel. He will have gained political respect and, and uh, political capital with Israel at that point. He's also involved, don't forget, the, the Antichrist is involved with the harlot world religion. We're told in Revelation 17, he, the harlot sits on the beast in Revelation 17.3. He carries the, the harlot, the beast carries the harlot in Revelation 17.7. So on a side note, he's got a relationship with Israel. He's also got a relationship with church, unholy alliance with the harlot too around that time. They are partners. The Antichrist and false prophet are, are partners. Well, the false prophet, and then you have the, the false religion too. Yeah, so you've got three different things yeah. there. You've got the false counterfeit harlot religion <clears throat> that gets desolated at the midpoint of the tribulation mm-hmm. by the ten kings. Revelation 17, 16, and 17. And then they give all their power and authority, which would then, of course, include the wealth and aspect, mm-hmm. attributes of whatever the harlot represented. And they give that the kingdom to the beast. Now that, around the midpoint of the tribulation, now he starts his season under the sun mm-hmm. in prophecy. And at that time he picks up, I say this loosely, tongue-in-cheek, a, a hitchhiker called the false prophet. In other words, this guy's got to come along and be his spiritual point man. So, and... You know, some people think he's the Pope, and I got my reasons yeah. why I don't think so. But so, but you have a false prophet and an antichrist and two together. But you also, in the first half, because they're predominantly in the second half of the Great mm-hmm. Tribulation, the Harlow world religion is in this unholy alliance with the antichrist, 
in the first half, she overextends her usefulness, and the ten kings take her out and give their kingdom and authority to the beast. We're getting a little away from what we're yeah. talking about, but the point is, yeah. remember, remember that the Antichrist is trusted by certain people. Israel will be one. The harlot will be another. Is the harlot the other signatory? I think so, but I have to kind of okay. coddle people through to get to that point to understand it. Okay, so let's move from there to Isaiah chapter 28, continuing with the covenant. There's going to be this covenant that's going to be confirmed. Got all these different people on board. You have the false, the, the harlot. You have the uh, Antichrist. Isaiah chapter 28. L- something happens that causes Israel to say, I want to sign this. Mm-hmm. I want to enter into this. What is it? That's right. And, and thanks for bringing that up because I think a lot of people, when they talk about the false covenant that starts the tribulation, and that's why it's critically important, it's, it's the document that starts the tribulation yeah. time clock ticking. Now, they just sort of confine their understanding to Daniel 9, 20, verse 27. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, read Isaiah 28, verses 15 and 18, because we get a lot of more very important details. Isaiah 28, verse 15 tells us that Israel signs a covenant with the other signatory, which is death and Sheol. So, well, who are they? You can't sign a covenant with some nebulous, spiritual, intangible. We've got to put a face on them. Why is Israel motivated to even sign this covenant in the first place? Well, because they're trying to avoid what the Bible calls an overflowing scourge that's sweeping through the earth that must undoubtedly be mm-hmm. being perpetrated by whoever death and Sheol represent. So we, we start thinking, okay, well, so now we know the reason they come to the bargaining table. They're trying to avoid some overflowing scourge. Then we know the other party is death and Sheol. It doesn't help us a lot. We've got to put faces on these things and identify what's going on at that point in time in the future. Now, are we going to find that in the book of Revelation, which we, mm-hmm. I believe we will? And then Isaiah 28 18 takes us down and says that the, the covenant with death and Sheol reminds us again it's death and Sheol will actually be annulled. And we know the annulling of it is when the Antichrist goes in, Daniel 9, 27, mm-hmm. into the temple and he stops the sacrifices and offerings. It annuls the covenant at that time. So we've got to put all those de- details together. Now, the Antichrist is commonly taught, shows up as the white horseman in the seal judgments mm-hmm. of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I think we both agree he's probably the Antichrist showing up right there. So most of our colleagues would say, well, this must be when the tribulation starts. He must confirm the false covenant right there. Israel's on the scene. The Antichrist is there. This must be where it starts. And I say, well, not necessarily. Yeah. You have a, you, so you have a different opinion. And uh, I, I think our listeners are going to want to hear this, right? A conventional teaching with Bible prophecy have, has taught exactly what you just said. So the, uh, the peace, or the co- it's a covenant of peace, it begins with the first horseman of the apocalypse, uh, the, the first seal judgment when the white horse appears. But you have a different uh, perspective on that. So you're going to take us around to the Bill Salas camera, and let's get your camera view. you got the first four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then you have the fifth seal judgment that takes place, and we hear the words a little while longer from the Lord. Mm-hmm. So you put all these together, Bill Salas camera view on, on these first uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, and thanks for allowing me to, to talk about the alternative view of the timing some of the people, seals. Yeah, some people don't like this alternative view. They get mad at you over it. I they have, write you hate mail. I've, uh, you're right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can we can disagree on the timing of Ezekiel 38. You know, some people are arguing mid-trib, post-trib, rapture. Pre- but the minute you take the seals out of the 70th week of Daniel, all of a sudden yeah. you've created an anathema. I, I, I say that jokingly. Because first of all, the traditional view that you talked about, that could ac- be accurate. I mean, that really mm-hmm. could be when they started. It could be fit into the tribulation period. 
I'm just presenting an alternative view for various reasons. Yes, Israel's on the scene at the time of the white horse, the, white, the first seals open and the white horsemen. We all tend to agree that's the Antichrist, so the confirmer of the covenant's on the scene. But is the other signatory on the scene yet? Who's death in Sheol? What's the overflowing scourge? First of all, there's nowhere in the book of Revelation that tells us exactly when the false covenant gets confirmed. So people assume it's got to be when the Antichrist comes on as the white horseman. Okay? But the Greek word for covenant, the only Greek word that could be used, is not in Revelation 6, 1 and 2, which is diatheki. So if he confirmed the covenant there, it sure would have been nice if you know, God, John would have wrote down, hey, diatheki, somewhere in, in those verses. But it says he comes out conquering and to conquer. So he's embarking on his threefold process of becoming who he is. He becomes a military leader because he's killing, he's waging and winning wars in Daniel 11. He becomes a political figure, supreme political figure, because Israel trusts him to broker a contract. He's embedded with the harlot world religion. And he becomes a supreme religious leader because ultimately in Revelation 13, he's forcing people to worship him and exalting himself above all that's called God. So he's going to embark upon that career. Now, who's the fourth horseman? It's death in Hades. So we come down, you got the red horseman's wars, you got famine, scarcities, and pestilences of the black horseman. And here along comes this fourth horseman with two riders. Death and Hades is side-saddling with it. Now, Hades is a Greek word for Sheol in Isaiah 28. So the question is, could the other party actually be in the four horsemen? And I, Well, coincidentally, it's the same name. And what is that horseman doing? That horseman has authority or power over a quarter of the earth. Now, some people would say it's killing a quarter of the earth, and they might be. But it says authority or power over a quarter of the to kill mm-hmm. through multiple means, multiple weapons, famine, swords, mm-hmm. pestilences, etc. So all of a sudden, I think you have the second signatory on the scene, and they're sweeping through the earth with a lot of authority, killing. Uh, which I'll just segue out for a second and remind people that the harlot world religion is killing Christians. They're just drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Revelation 17:6. The reason that's important because after you go into the fifth seal. Now the fourth seal is on the scene, the harlot world, uh, the death in Hades, maybe the other signatory. They're killing, and who are they killing? Well, the fifth seal saints end up, probably some of their victims, if not their first victims, probably not their only victims, but they're dissenting from whatever the fourth horseman's all about. And so they ask this question, and they're under the altar, they've been killed, they're saved, for their, died for their faith. They said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who just killed us, right? So they're asking a very interesting question. If the tribulation time clock has already been ticking with the first white horseman, why are they even asking that time? They could actually calendar the days until seven years comes mm-hmm. come by. And it's not an ignorant question. These people give their life for their faith mm-hmm. at a time when prophetic awareness is at an all-time high. The rapture will have happened. The Damascus will have been destroyed. Ezekiel 38 may have happened by then. They're going to be have fairly prophetically minded. They're going to know what a tribulation is, a lot of these guys, right? Mm-hmm. So I just find it interesting that they're asking that question. I find it more interesting that God's answering it. And the way he's answering it is, well, he's not saying, well, you should know. It's only you know, it's a seven-year time clock. He says, no, there's three periods of Christian martyrdom. You must rest a little while longer until your fellow servants who will be killed like you and their brethren who will be killed like you will all be you know, killed by you. So you've got the fifth seal saints, the fellow servants of the fifth seal saints, and the brethren of the fellow servants of the fifth seal saints. They're all going to die for their faith. Now we know the Antichrist is going to be head Christians in the second half of the tribulation. We're not taking his mark. We know the harlot is drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus in the first half of the tribulation. What's going on? Is there a gap between the rapture mm-hmm. and the tribulation? How come these guys don't know how much longer until they're going to be avenged? So uh, I I put forward the alternative view, which is as follows. Uh, 
the false covenant gets confirmed once the overflowing scourge is being perpetrated by the fourth horseman. The fourth horseman is the other signatory death in Hades. When we act Isaiah 28, death in Sheol. The fifth seal saints actually die in a gap between the rapture and the tribulation. They, that's why they ask how long. They don't know how long the gap is, how much longer until the tribulation starts. And then the, the fellow servants of the fifth seal saints are martyred by the harlot, just like the fifth mm-hmm. seal saints are martyred by the harlot in the first half of the tribulation. The brethren of the fellow servants of the fifth seal saints are beheaded by the Antichrist in the second half of the tribulation. So you have three different periods of Christian martyrdom executed by two different killing crusades of Christians, the Antichrist, the White Horseman, and Death in Hades, the Fourth Horseman, mm-hmm. who, unless there's another killing campaign apart from the Harlot of Revelation 17, now makes the Fourth Horseman the Harlot World Religion. Now, you're going to have to rewind what That's we just a said, lot. <laughs> or get, pick That's up my lot. next prophecy and last prophecies <laughs> book, and don't take my word for it. It's an alternative view. Be a Berean, because there are a lot of people who would not agree with what I just said. Yeah. So you, you just put a lot out there. Let me ask you this, because you just also scared a whole bunch of people. Where do you place the rapture? Here's the, the first horseman of the apocalypse, the first seal judgment. Where do you place the rapture in this? Uh, any minute? I'm hoping any minute. So pre-tribulation, pre the first horseman of the apocalypse, but you have people getting saved at that point during after that? Is that... Oh yeah, there's many people who get okay. saved after the rapture. I'm just trying to not scare everybody half to death already, just with everything that you just you just. Well, said. Then what are they waiting for? <laughs> Let them be. So, little... so would you say then, really, we look at Ezekiel and these different po- po- uh, prophecies? The rapture could take place at any moment, and we need to always be ready. Would you say that? Yes. Okay. So let's. Move. I think you just relieve some people. Okay. Now let me ask you this: just two more things. All right. You have another book coming out. And this is a subject that I'm, I'm really involved in as of late. Also, I have two books out on America, America's Coming Judgment and uh, America in the New World Order. Mm-hmm. And both of them apply to where we are in the world right now. I wrote them a few years ago, and uh, you, you, you're, you're well aware of those. Yeah. Um, and in that, I talked about technology and Mark of the Beast and why judgment is coming in the other book. You have a lot to say in your books and a lot coming up. Okay, Mark of the Beast and technology. There is something coming right now. We've been hearing about it for a couple of years. You and I have anyways. IV 2020. Uh, Bill Gates is involved in this. You have um, the UN is involved in it. Um, We now are doing a virtual prophecy conference because of uh, some COVID-19 thing that's been going on. Um, And people have been dying from that. Um, The ID 2020 involves vaccines and an identification at the same time. Uh, are you familiar much with ID2020? Are you talking about the quantum dot uh, yes. tattoo? The yeah. quantum the quantum dot tattoo, which is fascinating to me. That, that project, yeah. Yeah, when you, when you, exactly, that's it. So you look at the Mark of the Beast, Revelation chapter 13, you're hearing about these things, uh, forced vac- vaccinations or you won't be able to travel, you um, the identification that is connected with the vaccination. And currently the talk is, I believe, is you're going to be, you need to be ID'd for the vaccination purpose because you can't travel over here if you haven't been vaccinated yet. The only way to know if you've been vaccinated yet is if you have this ID mm-hmm. and it comes to the quantum dot tattoo, right. which can't be seen by eyes, but it's on your body. Mm-hmm. And that could be, uh, it could be, I don't know yet where they're planning to put this on your right hand or on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And I look at this 
and the various things we're talking about, we live in remarkable days. Well, I, I concur. You know, what's interesting when you talk about a tattoo, per se, the, the question comes up in Revelation chapter 13. It says that people will be required to take a mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead. Um, it almost sounds like it's not a digital implant. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, it, that's people have struggled with that. How a digital embedded implant makes a lot of sense. You know, you, you could you could do everything. You could follow everything. You could have a cashless society. All your personal banking records, everything can be on a little digital implant mm-hmm. inside of your skin. But it does talk about upon, right? Mm-hmm. So then the question is, well, how's that going to work, right? Mm-hmm. And this quantum dot tattoo thing may be the answer to that thing. That's very yeah. interesting to me. It, it kind of sol- it solves that because it is upon, but you can't necessarily see it unless you have equipment to read that you right. have this tattoo that you're marked, uh, literally a mark like that. Um, here's something else that's fascinating. You brought this up to me several years ago, but now as I look at ID2020, and I want to clarify this. I'm not saying ID2020 is the mark of the beast, right. but it certainly has this technology involved in it and everything that is inspiring people to say, I want to sign up for that because of the connections with vaccine, not getting a, a coronavirus or something like that, uh, the identification. But here's another intriguing thing. Bill, there's a, anybody during the tribulation period that receives the mark of the beast is going to, at some point, they're going to break out with some kind of disease or something on their body. They're not going to be able to die. They're going to wish they could die. Mm-hmm. But it only happens to people who receive the mark. You remember talking to me about that some years back? Well, there's a uh, fifth trumpet judgment for five months men are tormented by these locusts, which I believe are demons. It says, torment all those who don't have the seal of God. Uh, I actually put that in the first half of the tribulation. Mm-hmm. So now you'd be talking about the bold judgments that happened in the second half of the tribulation. Mm-hmm. So it could be at that point. But what's interesting, because I want to also call it, caveat this, like you just said, we're not saying that the mm-hmm. quantum dot is there. Remember that, you know, it may come a point in time where people, believers and things are offered this thing before the rapture. You know, this this dot, this tattoo. Just taking that in itself is not necessarily the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is a sort of a loyalty thing. You're pledging your worship to the Antichrist. That's step one. You're worshiping either him or the image of him. Put forward the image of the beast. And then as a result, you're given a mark. So you've already made a commitment if you're going to take it for that purpose, yeah. to be part of his cashless economy. Just because someone may get an embed, embedded chip or a tattoo or something like that does not necessarily mean they can't, right. they've lost their salvation. Because the concern is once you take the yeah. mark of the beast, you're appointed to God's wrath. Right. Yeah, and, and we do need to be very clear on that. Because there's people now that have some kind of identification that they need for medical purposes or they're used for medical purposes. And I, my guess is this thing's going to be rolled out that way at first. Somewhere along the line, it's going to be now you've, you've got to worship Antichrist. If you don't, you can't buy or sell. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly see things progressing in society now where you're not going to be able to buy or sell unless you fall into line. Because mm-hmm. you look at society and just like that, as we look at the events of 2020 take place, mm-hmm. all of a sudden we realize, okay, uh, in certain parts of the world, uh, including the United States, you can only uh, go to the store on these days or you can only shop during these hours. And uh, there's not, there, there isn't bread on all the aisles anymore. Um, there's all, everything, the whole dynamic has changed. 
and we've seen it happen so fast, it also makes sense that we would go to a cashless society, doesn't it? Right, and I think that's clearly what Revelation 13 is talking about. We're going to we're going to end up there, and it's going to be the the technology the Antichrist embraces. It's already going to be in place. He's going to maybe he may fine tune it or whatever, but he's going to embrace it as his ability to monitor everything that's going on. You know, God searches the hearts and minds of people to see what their thoughts are. He does this continuously. The Antichrist, Satan, they can't do that, but they can track everybody's footsteps mm-hmm. and everybody's consumer behavior and that sort of thing, and they can. Get them involved in these digital currencies. They can, they can stop the flow of funds. They can tell them what they got to buy. They can, you know, all these sort of things. So the thing is, how do we get from here to there? And what we're going through with this COVID thing or whatever is that facilitating that movement? Well, in order to have a cashless society, you got to get rid of cash. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a tendency to get away from cash. It's dirty. You know, you're right. conveying it back and forth. You can pass the virus onto it. It can be counterfeited. You know, it's it's just an it's becoming an antiquated method of mm-hmm. doing business. Then you got the credit cards, okay? Well, the credit cards are e- equally as bad, if not worse, with carrying a virus on it. Plus, you got to swipe them and put them in credit card readers. Who knows what hands have been on that and that sort of thing. Ultimately, it makes most sense to get into a crypto-type currency. You don't need a bank account. You don't have bank, of fee- bank fees, a digital dollar, a digital wallet. These things are already available. Bill Gates started, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook introduced the Libra. Mm-hmm. He has, I don't think it's been implemented just yet as we speak, but China all of a sudden said, no, we want that cryptocurrency. You know, the Bitcoin uh, came out like 2012 and it exploded in 2017, this kind of cryptocurrency. But now these things are going to be refined more. China started coming out. Now all of a sudden, South Korea just came out the other day. They want to keep in line with America and Japan, who are also now on the mm-hmm. race to get the cryptocurrency. You know, it's almost like the race to the moon. Who's going to get there first, right? Yeah. So this this is where I think this is going right now, and I think it's going to be facilitated by this pandemic thing we're going through get away from cash get away from credit cards get into cryptocurrencies the the federal banks the central banks of all these countries are concerned about losing control of the money supply Mm -hmm. you get into cryptocurrencies they can no longer monitor that Mm -hmm. it makes sense for them to be involved they don't have money of dealing with costs to make up dollars and coins and print that stuff you can give it to banks bank fees Mm -hmm. you can control you can monitor it's it's the way to go you can control drug deals because you suddenly eliminate problems that you have from the black market of all That's right. different kinds money of money laundering, yeah. money laundering, all kinds of things you can eliminate mm-hmm. uh, with that. But uh, I see these things coming really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I looked, Bill, just at the past. Let's go back ten years, um, and we both taught Bible prophecy for a long time. But we talked about birth pangs, mm-hmm. and and birth pangs they they get intense and then they subside intense and then they subside so what's happened the last few years it's like uh, i would say since trump became president they never seem to subside it's just like increase 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 right and not only that like birth pangs do just before the baby's born all of a sudden it's like it's like increasing in intensity and it is not letting go Mm -hmm. so it's like we're going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger I'm thinking, man, we ne- we need to be ready. Wouldn't you? What what would be your final words to everybody who's watching this? Right, and the analogy you used of birth things, we're quoting Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, verses 8. One translation says, "Beginning of sorrows." And what he says as he's answering the question is, "When is the end of the age for his apostles?" He says in Matthew 24, verses 8, he says, "There's going to be um, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places." 
These are the beginning of sorrows, right? So we have to ask ourselves, we're seeing earthquakes increasing exponentially over the last decade or two. Locusts are swarming around Africa as we speak and Middle East and even off toward Asia. That's going to precipitate serious famines. Does this type of a pandemic, does this actually qualify for what Christ was saying? Because if it is, it's the beginning of sorrows. And then the verse 9 says, and then they will cast you into tribulation. Then you'll go into tribulation. So are we right on the, the cusp of Jesus is going to come get the church. We get raptured. Maybe there's a little bit of a gap in between. And then the tribulation starts relatively quickly thereafter. Literally within a couple years, maybe. I mean, you know, I have mm-hmm. to tell people, maybe not. But you know what? There's a sense of urgency here, folks. Yeah. Everything yeah. has changed right now. Yeah. You know, right now is the time to get to know Jesus Christ. Amen. That's, that's a- my word. Amen. I would agree 100%. Listen, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or you're wondering if you've ever made an actual commitment to Him, if you're wondering, then you probably haven't. Ask Christ to forgive you of your sins right now. It's, a, it's an urgent time. And repent. To repent means to make a U-turn. You turn from your sin, you surrender to the Lord. If you do that and you mean it, you can know that you are forgiven. Listen, the time is short. A bill has been great having this time here with you. Amen. We're not allowed to shake each other's hands anymore. Um, You have uh, several books, and I've got a couple, and we talk about all of these different things, and uh, what a treat it's been to be able to do an interview like this with you. I can't wait till the next one. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.